Greetings all. Welcome back to another episode of the Coptimizer podcast. Today's guest is Chad. I'm going to throw in there Michael because it's in the title of your book, Chad Michael Bruckner. Chad is the author of The Holy Trinity of Successful and Healthy Police Organizations, Improving Leadership, Culture, and Wellness. He's an Army veteran, police veteran, and uh, just kind of kind of a good renaissance eclectic type of background you know just the type of person we like to chat with so welcome to the show hey patrick how you doing brother thanks for having me all right let's kind of jump right in yeah so brother we're we're from we have birth roots in the same area right around the uh, philadelphia area the philadelphia suburbs i was uh, my my mom and dad are from scranton lot of extended family in Scranton. I was born in Westchester and then uh, carted off to the Midwest as a young child <laughs> where where I went from being a Phillies fan to a Cubs fan uh, as hard as it might be. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm still an Eagles guy, but I, you know, I like the root for the Colts and I don't know. Always, always a bit of a mix. But so where, where are you Philly from? Sports, man. I, I was actually at the Phillies game last night, Patrick. Oh, game one of the playoffs, man. <laughs> 4-1 victory. It was incredible. So uh, I've never I went to the World Series last year. I've never seen so much energy. It might have been the same as the World Series last year. It was incredible. I, I sat 10 minutes the entire game watching uh, on my feet every other time. It was unbelievable. So love it. Well, I'm hoping they can bring it home. They're definitely yeah. – uh, they're definitely my and favorite. And I'm sorry about your Cubs, man. I'm sorry about the Cubs. I thought they were going to make it in. I did. Dude, they totally, you know, well, I I, I don't even want to go down the baseball path because, you know, they, baseball, it's it's like all professional sports. From time to time, they just really, really, um, they really piss me off. <laughs> and it has nothing yeah. to do with the sport. It's like, let baseball be baseball. But yeah, that, that can changes. be an alienating topic. So. You know, this this is probably, you know, I've had I have three boys. Um, they all played baseball at one at one time or another. My youngest is in high school still and playing baseball. So I love baseball. So it breaks my heart sometimes to not to not, you know, sometimes feel that draw to be a fan. But anyway, I, yeah, digress. I get it. Sports is a heartbreaking thing. It always is. <laughs> always is. It can be a uniter and a divider. It's exactly. Like it's like technology. <laughs> that's true that's true that is very true so uh so tell me a little bit about let's let's start with um your childhood yeah and then a little touch on your military background and then go back to school because you set it up nicely in your book and uh i think you've got a great message to share and i think no matter where anyone is in their police organization from from a rookie just starting out to a veteran police chief, there's tons of lessons that people can learn. So hmm. let's get out. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. Um, you know, I never wanted to be a police officer. Um, my mom wanted me to be one and um, I never wanted to be one, but I grew up in a town where great town. And uh, the only contact I had with police officers was uh, speeding tickets. I got my license at 16 and I was out past midnight when there's a curfew, 12 o'clock curfew and got pulled over and, had dad had to come pick me up. So my only experience with, with law enforcement was so limited. It was just traffic citations, great, great officers, nice interactions, but the job itself, I, I thought of myself, you know, just, I need to do more than write traffic tickets. So having that little limited perspective, I've always kind of went against what Bob said. 
Interestingly, well, it was one. It's good to know that they at least had tra- uh, curfew laws back then. <laughs> I don't know what it's like out there anymore. They, they pretty much yeah. have all gone away. Yeah, everything is kind of uh, free for all. I mean, there is, but I don't think the enforcement side of it gets really done as much as it like it used to. Um, so, uh, interestingly, when I was in Iraq for my, I was in the army for eight years. My final year is when I was did a combat tour in Iraq, and we were in the north end of the Sunni Triangle operating in the second largest oil refinery city in, in, in Iraq. And um, man, what an experience that was because so many, but the one I'll, I'll say as it relates to policing is it was the first time I was an infantryman. So we were training to shoot, move, communicate, and kill. I mean, that was our mission statement, shoot, move, communicate, and kill. And um, we never had to deal with citizens or develop informants, anything like that. It was a woodland, you know, in the, in the, in the woods type of training. And then nine 11 happened and we started doing urban training and started learning how to use civil affairs to cultivate informants. So things that I was learning that were new to me in the, even in the army side at 24, 25, these were new experiences. And I remember being in Iraq and, and developing uh, intelligence from Iraqi soldiers, from Iraqi citizens, uh, building relationships with them, which to me was the most impactful because that's how you get the best information just those experiences without thinking of it through the lens of law enforcement made me realize when I came home and having further conversations with my mom about what policing is, I said, you know what, I think there's a little bit more than writing traffic tickets. So that, that experience in Iraq is, was a, a huge turning point for me. And then of course, what I also needed was I met my wife the summer I came back from Iraq and um, that was a, uh, she was a school teacher, had a master's degree, had her own house. I was living in the same boyhood bed as, I grew up in at my parents' house. I didn't even have a car because I was in the army and overseas. So there's no need to have one. So there was just a lot of um, uh, a learning I was doing on the civilian side going through that transition. When I met my wife and, and man, she really made me realize of, of relationship capital, how much I want to marry her, how much I want to take care of, provide for her. And therefore I need a career to do that. So at this time, I didn't have a job, Patrick, at that time when I met her. So um, yeah, so I, I was full speed ahead in, in 2007 to, to go get police academy, go get my certification, go be a cop, go be a great cop, take care of my wife, have a family. That was where my mode is at that time. So it, where, where you became an officer, did you have to be hired by an agency to go to the academy or could you put yourself through the academy and then and then get hired uh, post academy certification? Or both. You could put yourself through, and that, that's what I did. I used the VA, uh, the GI Bill, to put myself through. And I would say to my class, there were twenty of us. I, I think only three or four had jobs, or maybe five or six. The rest of us put our put ourselves through, and uh, it was pretty inspiring when you look back at that. Is how many people are putting uh, betting on themselves? You know, having a chance yeah. to say, "I'm going to spend this money, invest in myself." And then during these studies, during this academy process, I'm going to apply to jobs and interview and, and apply. And it's it's uh. There's a lot of credit we should be given. I think the police cadets more than we do to, to that, that do that path because that is not an easy path, especially if you you don't know if it's going to work or not. If you have uh, you know that other than just that belief in yourself. Yeah, you know it's an interesting aside. You know, just just to chat about it for a minute because every state is a little bit different, and you know, since in the post 2020 environment, the the whole concept or discussion around reimagining policing, this the idea of training comes up frequently how do you properly prepare and train a police officer? Um, is it, is it best to do it in a centralized Academy setting? Is it best to take like the European model or what they do in Australia where you sent, where people go to policing colleges, like you're literally a college student going uh, through policing And some States in in the U S have similar programs Florida, I think, you know, has parts of theirs. that's like that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it because 
the academy that I went to, at first you you had to be hired, and then the and then the agency would send you through and pay for it. Mm-hmm. And I think I was one in one of the first classes that actually allowed people to put themselves through the academy. And we had a we had a re, a Marine Corps retiree that was in our class, and and a couple of others that eventually, you know, they got hired afterwards. And I know now in this competitive environment, uh, if you put yourself through the academy, there's there's chiefs and recruiters waiting on graduation day. <laughs> They're waiting there to hand you cards like, hey, co- you know, come to our agency because now you're, we don't have to pay to send you through the academy. You've made that investment in yourself. Um, you know, the downside to that is that you can have, potentially have candidates that will put themselves through that probably don't have an opportunity or probably shouldn't have an opportunity to work for a policing agency based on um, issues that maybe they have in their background or other things. Um, and they're just looking to, you know, give themselves a chance to get in, get their foot in the door when they probably shouldn't. So like anything else, yeah. I guess if you do your proper vetting, uh, that shouldn't be a problem either way. Yeah. The, the academy I, I went to and I ended up teaching there um, for four years after uh, later and um, I just had great relationships. I thought they do a really good job for being a municipal police academy that's run through a community college. I mean, they, you know, I come from the military where my way, uh, my method, I think the best, most efficient way to train somebody is to go off site. You and me, we're going to live together for X number of days, whatever we can afford together. And that you're going to you're going to get that immersion. Um, going to a community college part-time or full-time with, and while you're working and taking care of a family, applying to police departments. Like there's so much more layers to it to develop yeah. and prepare yourself for that career. And I thought my community college where I went did a, did a really, really good job of um, understanding that. They did an interview process when I, when I went in 07 or 06. I might never forget. It. I sat with the director doing an interview and he said, why do you want to be a police officer? I wasn't even a cop yet. And I'm trying to get into the academy and he's asking me all these questions about why I want to be a cop. So the level of, of vetting, at least there, you know, I was I was happy with. We also lost somebody in the academy that probably was that one person you were talking about who who you know you weren't sure like what were their intentions, and, and they ended up washing out anyway. So um, because I think this is a job and a career, you know, served longer than me. You know, you, you got to really want to be in it to stay in it long term because you're going to change or things are going to happen that that uh, you know are just part of this job. Yeah. Uh, and again, I don't want to go too far down this path, but it is, I, I think it is interesting to discuss if somebody's willing to put themselves through school to get those certifications, you're not necessarily, the agency isn't making that initial investment because when it comes to recruitment and retention issues right now, which it's so competitive in the in the environment to find good talent, um, you know, we're <laughs> we're cannibalizing each other in policing through incentives like cash bonuses and stuff like that, that are probably not, you know, if in the grand scheme of things, maybe not the best way to incentivize, how, how do you attract the right people to your agency? But one of the arguments that, that chiefs will make, and one of the reasons why you go through such extensive background and research is like when I hire somebody, I'm really hoping that I, that I have them, for an extended period of time. And, and we're, we're now seeing these turnover rates in that first three years, uh, upwards to 20 to 30%, where we never used to see that before. And and now you see cash going out the door when an officer goes out the door, because man, we just, we spent all that time investing and they really, and they really didn't have any intention in, of staying with our agency. They just used us to go somewhere else. And again, interestingly, 
20 years ago, it was always smaller departments getting manipulated like that and larger agencies that had more opportunities, better pay, better training. They tended to pull candidates, but it's been the kind of the reverse in the last few years where these love, large agencies this, are getting siphoned off. Like they're all going to. I love it. You know, if you're going to create bad cultures, let's go down this road. If you're going to create bad cultures, because this is why people leave. I really believe it. I, I don't think the money is nearly, we keep throwing monies at these solutions. Um, I think money is a factor. Sure. We want to be compensated fourth, more compared to fourth and fifth, um, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is um, on the list. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, like field of dreams, if you build it, they will come. If you build it, they will come. Um, I I've experienced this in my own, my own workplace events in the army or police work as well, where people have chosen to work in places I've been in units I've been in because of the fun we're having or of what we're building or the impact we're having on things. Nothing about money, nothing about uh, the potential for advancement. It was being a part of something special. So I think if we build, we focus really, really focus, and this is what P2 is doing, which is amazing to be, be involved in it, really focus on culture. I think everything flows through the culture. Um, it doesn't mean that it's, it's free of conflict or free of strife or free of problems. What the culture does, I believe it is, um, it, it allows us to eat through those things quicker. We just chew through those problems because we have a strong culture and people are going to kind of want to be there. I talked to a police cadet the other day and he was asking me in this area, this, this Philly area where I live, uh, you know, what police department's good one to work for? <laughs> These are questions you never heard before. You know, I took right. my first police officer job because I, you just, you were told. Yeah, the one you, you can get it hired at is the one, <laughs> it's yeah. the one that, but it's not like that anymore. No. And you know what I said? I said, I don't know because I've been out, but I tell you, focus on culture. Ask around and ask what, ask about the culture. That will tell you what you need to know. Everything else, the money and contract negotiations and, and take-home cars or canine opportunities. Yeah, obviously, those are going to be department-specific if that's what you really know and want. But for me, I didn't know anything other than I just want to be a cop and serve my community. So I think for those people that are young and like that now, the only thing I can tell them is, you know, find, find a department with a great culture. Um, because we, I think we're learning if you don't go somewhere with a great culture, the shelf life might not be that long. And it might not be in a place where you can thrive in. And, uh, and God forbid you go through a challenge, you know, is that going to be an environment for you to also pull yourself back up in? Um, yeah. You, know, you, have, you have to find to... the right fit, right? Because, you know, sometimes it's not a culture issue. Sometimes it's just a fit issue. Like there, this is um, the pace is too fast or the mm, work. That's a good is, point. Yeah. And if you get the wrong person in the wrong environment, then that can, that can be a path towards misery. And that's not good for either, either party. No. So, yeah, you know, I get that question a lot. And one of the things that I strongly encourage young people to do that are interested in this profession is go do a ride along agencies. Mm. And if an agency doesn't want to give you a ride along, mm, you know, I don't know. If, I don't know if I'd want to look there anyway, because Pat, Patrick, we got rid of ride alongs in my area. Like most of the departments got rid of them uh, because of liabilities. So yeah, I, I don't yeah, understand just... liability because that's what waivers are for. And you know, of, I, of yeah, course, I there's think, always a, a risk. You can't right, guarantee right. someone's safety, but boy, how how do you you know how do you highlight you, you know your your good officers and and the cool things that you're doing if you don't give people a chance to come take a peek? It's like that's 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 a that's a big chance for someone to roll the dice on if they haven't gotten a peek behind the curtain. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, we got when, towards the end, we got rid of them. Um, and now they may have come back, you know, obviously I've been gone for almost three years, but um, there was a lot of agencies where I worked at and just, just talking to two different agencies, the liability, not feeling like it was something that we could do effectively. So we'll just get rid of it. You know, it's, it's, again, I think we get back to structurally, structural organization of 
do we have the right people in place to make these programs and initiatives work? You know, with the chief, if he's a go-getter, he can't do all, he or she cannot do all that stuff. If they got their own work ethic and talent, they're going to have to change because they can't do that. They're not going to be able to do their job and do the things they used to do. So finding sub-leaders, finding, uh, uh, developing people to, to offshoot those really important programs and run and lead them and give them the autonomy to do that, I think can be really help- helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I can, I can attest to that. You're, if, if you're a chief and you're running the ride along program, you probably got bigger problems. Um, but if you're a chief in an agency that doesn't have ride alongs, you better be asking the question why, and, and, what would prevent you from, you know, highlighting and showcasing your agency? Yeah. Anyway, uh, I, I digress. I totally agree. No, that's so, a great thing. So you, so you come out of the army and you meet this, this woman who's got her together for lack of a better terms. <laughs> and, and you're totally like, true. wow, wow. That's a, that's what adulting is like. Like <laughs> you're not living in the basement at mom and dad's house. <laughs> you actually so have true. a job with like insurance and benefits. Like what are those? And she uh, said, yeah, I even have a dog, a Yorkie. I said, wow, wow this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know, men and women, it, you know, this could be another conversation. The The prefrontal cortex of, of a man is generally not fully developed until about age 25. I might say for me, it was closer to 30 uh, if it has ever, stu- if it's ever <laughs> happened. But yeah, so true. That's uh, I, I agree with you. I, I was a rockhead and, and uh, you know, meeting Kristen was, um, watching somebody with a career. I think that's really what you know, she was in. Edu- she's still in education and watching her. She was a six years teacher when I met her at 25, she got hired at 21 and right out of college. And, um, you know, she already had a master's at 25 when I met her, like she was already out of school and already done all that and already six years into her career. And we're the same age, I mean, 13 days apart. And, uh, that was meeting her and seeing like where her career track was and what her life was, was a reminder of, man, I'm 25. I have a high school diploma. I live at home in my parents' house. I live in a tw- sleep in a twin bed. I don't have a job. You know, it, it was stress. It was a stressful time, that transition of like, man, I got to get my stuff together. Everyone else is 25 of my age is like in their job, you know? And if you're not, there's usually like an asterisk by your name while you're not having a career, you know? So, um, well, let's, let's also give credit where credit is due. You also served your country. You, um, you serve not, not only just served, but served in combat, um, which are really two distinct things that I think people need to understand. Um, so you did, you did invest and there, there were lessons that you were learning and gaining that people that took the college route aren't going to get, they're not going to receive. And, uh, you know, one might say that those, you know, while one, you know, one set of lessons is forged in fire, the other is, is, you know, is gleaned in academics. Both are important. And neither one is mutually exclusive. Uh, They benefit each other. There's synergy there, Mm -hmm. especially if you can get involved in a good team. But suffice to say, you know, in your case, that was the motivation for you to uh, look for this career, look uh, look at something where you can take the skills that you learned, uh, particularly when you were talking about what you were doing with civil affairs, because you said something that I wanted to come back to. You, You said the key word, right? we can glean better information by building relationships and yeah. in policing we, whether you want to agree with it or not above all else we're in the information business and we are useless without good information it's just like in the intelligence world and so that's why programs like data driven that are uh, intelligence led whatever name you want to call it, it, it community policing 
it's all about relationships. It's all about information. And if you understand that and you're good at it, uh, man, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to crush it. Mm, but if, so if you think that you can just muscle your way through the streets, um, it it's not going to work and then probably going to back, you know, backfire. And, and I think some of those things, you know, we learned some of those lessons as a profession, the hard way, particularly in the last decade. Um, yeah. I mean, it's almost like a family, uh, family unit when you have dysfunction or toxicity, like I've learned to not uh, be afraid of it. Like if, if we want to get better at this and, um, it's easy for me to say from the outside now I left, you know, two years ago, but, um, I still care so much about it, Patrick. I think about it all the time, just like you, what P2 is doing. And I realized finding people like us finding each other post-retirement, post-career and still wanting to do work in it, it. To me, it says everything you need to know. Like these are people that are in it for the right reasons. So, um, yeah, I think if, if we have hard truths and hard conversations and, and, and the interest of inclusion and, and wanting to get better, um, I hope that we can get to that. I think, I think we're in this phase now. And it's, it shows like yours and everyone else that as former chiefs, you know, those, that's how we get the impact is, is people that walk those roads and have led into high levels to uh, acknowledge, Hey, we need to make some growth and changes. Yeah. And there's always room for it. It doesn't matter. And there, and it, you have to commit to being a lifelong learner and you have to commit to having an open mind. Um, and you have to trust people, right? Uh, it's, uh, it, it's a, you, you, just like you mentioned earlier, you can't do it. You can't do it alone. Nobody does it alone. It really doesn't matter where you are in the organizational structure. It's you, you've got an, a, an important role and if you do it well, and, and, and oftentimes we do a good job of teaching. Well, maybe we don't do a good job of it, but I, I think we have the framework of, and, and a value of understanding what leadership and training can bring. But sometimes you also have to learn to be a good follower. And I think that's the, the military does that exceptionally well. Uh, they, they work well on both ends of the spectrum. Uh, because if you, if you don't know how to be a good follower, you're never going to be a good leader. Um, mm, that's and, a great point. You, you, and it, I, I don't think I talked to this in my book, and you made me think about this now, but um, and it might have not, it might not be, and I might have cut that out. There was a lot of, kind of things that hit the hit the floor during the editing process. But one of them is the the kind of the the fiefdom or the chief the chiefdom I call it. Um, and that depends where you're at, you know, geographically and what the system, how it's set up organizationally. But you know, I can only speak to Pennsylvania. You know, we have the third most municipalities in the country. Um, it's it's a huge state with tons of municipalities, and without drastic oversight, chiefs really don't have anyone to report to. I know they have the elected bodies, uh, but I mean, I've, my experience, I've seen, you know, elected bodies that aren't made up of law enforcement officers. They have other challenges and pain points and things are working on. So they really have to trust, you know, the chief and other department heads that, that the information they're saying is true and believe, correct because I have to believe you. Um, so that, that always is going to present a potential for corruption, a potential for, you know, no one's really following up on me. No one really is overseeing me. I'm an integral person. That's how I got here. But over time, I'm a human. Um, you know, we're, we're left to our devices if we don't have accountability. In the military, I would have to stand at parade rest as a staff sergeant talking to an E7, one rank above me. Roger that sergeant, no sergeant. And then turn right around and talk to my guys who would stand at parade rest for me. There's such a structure. And you, don't, you don't even realize it when you're in it, but there's such a structure to respect and discipline. Um, and you said it the best, my brother, is, is the best leaders, the absolute best ones I've been around are, are great and tremendous followers. Well, that it's just the natural order of things. And, um, you know, because that makes you a good team member and, you know, teamwork is what, what makes everything successful. 
Um, and you know, there can be a lot of ways to get it done. And of course, it can cause conflict when people have a difference of opinion. But Absolutely. Before yeah. we go down that road, let's let's kind of touch on you early in your career, because one of the things that I think was so powerful and impactful about your book and is your ability to really, I think, just kind of open up and share your story. Um, and I think one of one of the problems that we have in policing is that we're not willing to do that. We're not willing to be vulnerable because we're trained not to be. You're trained to be a take charge leader, get things done. You're the first officer on scene. You're the leader. You're directing. You're supervising. You're telling all the other responders if it's a police related emergency, what's going to get done, who's going to do what. And you you learn this at a very early at a very early time in your policing career. Um, but what we have not always done a good job in is also teaching people like, well, how do we open up when things are impacting us, whether it's whether it's a professional question, whether it's a uh, you know, a personal struggle that you're having based on trauma that you're experiencing or other things. So maybe, maybe get into a little bit of that story and what you wrote about in the book and really kind of like, what was your driving force behind that? Uh, behind what specifically? I, I missed, behind, um, behind you sharing, you're like, what was the impetus the for you to say, look, I, I need to share my story. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, it's a great question because I didn't want to multiple times. And I talk about this in the book that, that I tried not to write the book. Um, and I kept being nudged back to do this. So I, I think for me was I left policing with my head low. Um, my head, little, little, not a little, very shamed, um, trying to figure out like what went good, what didn't, what didn't get went well. How did this end up to being the way it was you know, just right or wrong, just doing a reprisal and really deep reflection on things. And, um, what I learned is I tried to run away and uh, not really want to come back to the policing profession, not want to think about it, um, feeling a, a sense of betrayal and hurt that was so deep for me that that I'm just going to move on and do something else. As an empath, as a compassionate person, a social person, a, a person I think I care about other people tremendously, um, I have strong relationships. I continue to forge them. So what happened over the last two and a half years is Cops from all around the country uh, messaging me, texting me, scheduling phone calls. Can I jump on a Zoom with you? And hearing so many of the same pain points, the same struggles. Maybe it's not the exact same, but I, they can relate to the overarching themes of anxiety, of, of uh, you know, being targeted or uh, not being trusted or, or being micromanaged or uh, all these negative things that just come with working in policing. You know, it's not a negative thing per se if we can talk about it and work through it. But it, it became um, it's something for I heard from so many of I can't even talk about. It. I don't have, I don't know where I could talk about it to. I don't have anyone to open up to. Um, I don't I can't talk about this in my agency. I, you know, that's really what started to just weigh and weigh me down. Like, and as a leader, I think <laughs> I couldn't hide in my basement. I told my wife, you know, earlier this year, in January, when we're trying to figure this thing out, if I'm going to do this or not and praying a lot to God and. I told her I'm not wired and God did not make me in a way to hide in my basement and watch other people get hurt. I can't do it. I can't do it. I won't do it. And if I had to sacrifice myself along the way, bear with me one second. Yeah, I, appreciate if I had to sacrifice sharing. my time, my money to help people. I, that's the only thing I know how to do. I, I, I don't know how to hide and watch people get struggle. I, I can't do it. So um, that's really the, the emphasis of the book is I don't want to write it. I knew that, the, you know, maybe some of the 
problems they could bring or just, but there's also blessings to it. But, uh, but I, I know there's so many people in this that profession that you served at a high level that I served in that, that I think are just great human beings that have such a noble mission. And, and if we don't give them ability to get their voice out of it, or if I didn't share a little bit of me to be vulnerable with them and say, look, I was leading my agency in arrest. I was an expert in three different areas. Like I wasn't the guy that was like the last man on the squad. I was the go-getter. I was the, the, the foundational piece of that agency. And, um, so if I can be vulnerable, so can you. And if you can be vulnerable, you're probably going to have a more of a healthy life. And uh, I know we can do it just by sharing more together. And, and, and reading Brene Brown, really, the, the power of vulnerability by Brene Brown, that, that really helped me, you know, four or five years ago reading that was sharing more, storytelling, um, being empathetic, being vulnerable. Uh, our experiences are so much more connected if we just share them. And then we can get over them, you know, much like coaching, you know. I think coaching can have powerful effects similar to therapy, but it's completely different than therapy. I think coaching can actually help people in tremendous ways, cops to help us get back on the horse, maybe one or two sessions, three sessions. Um, maybe I just need somebody in my corner, someone to lift me up or remind me how freaking awesome I am. Um, so coaching can have really empowering effects in our, in our team. So yeah, that, that's the, the, uh, that's the, the nexus for brother is, um, wanting to help, but wanting to cops to understand they don't have to sit in silence and, and, um, choke down their tears or choke down their pain. There is another way. So you've mentioned P2 a couple of times. And then I think for most people that are listening, probably are familiar, but that's performance protocol. And that is a coaching company. And the, what you're describing is really one of the foundational principles behind this. Um, and that's, it, it was one of the, the, and I had Daniel Folk on, one of the one of our first episodes you really just asking him well why did you decide to pivot from using the executive coaching model and and taking that digital platform and moving it into working with law enforcement it was because people were seeking him out and people inside of law enforcement and mm -hmm. and I, I i don't like to rehash this story too many times because i keep finding myself saying it but i uh I didn't work with a coach until it was about year 25 in my career. And I was, and it was part of a different program that I, that I was doing that forced me to do it. It was a very, very uncomfortable thing, but 20 minutes into it, I, I was like, man, like, you know, the epiphany hit me and like hmm. they often do sometimes, right? Like, where's this been? Like, why haven't I been doing this? And for all the reasons and, and a lot more, right. What you just said, Sometimes you just got to connect with somebody that understands what you're experiencing because they've been there, but they're in a different social circle and they can give you really good feedback and they can, they can really ask you the right questions that you need to be asking yourself, right? It's not about giving advice. It's not about telling people what they should do. It's really about just making them aware of what their value is. Mm -hmm. And and how to and really how to negotiate some of these challenging times because I don't care where you are in the organization. Uh, first year, first year officer, you know, 25, 30 year veteran, chief, it doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, you know, and I, I I've had people say that to me a lot. Well, you're a chief, you're a chief. Well, yeah, but guess what? When you're a chief, you're even more isolated than you are as when you're an officer because <laughs> there's only one of you. Yeah, per yeah. agency. And, you know, there, there's a lot of competing ideas and opinions. And, and so, you know, being vulnerable uh, sometimes can be seen as, as a sign of weakness and, you know, it's it, but it's not right. It's, it really is a matter of, 
you know, just, you know, getting to a higher level of understanding. So that that's, that's pretty cool. And, you know, we don't have to go into the, the whole story in your, you know, that your book. And again, I'll tell people just come back and read it, but at a high level, what were some of the, the ramifications for you as, as you started experiencing some of this conflict inside your organization? Like, Hey, I hear, I think I'm doing a good job. I, I'm loving what I'm doing. Uh, I'm working really hard. I'm taking opportunities to uh, help others. And now suddenly I feel like, you know, maybe there's a, you know, maybe there's, there's a target on my back or there's a pressure here that I'm carrying that, that is, is starting to weigh me down. And, you know, how, yeah, you know what, that, were, what were the coping mechanisms there? It's, it's a great, that's a great question. And I think this is where so many cops can relate to. Um, not the first thing I want to say is, is not unilaterally casting blame anywhere or at anyone is probably the best thing that we can do all do in law enforcement during this reimagining phase. You know, there's never one thing that's to blame. There's never one person that's to blame and just listening and having conversations. And this is going to be, you know, this kind of talk is great. I was already going through some challenges at that time, personally unresolved to, to military um, experiences, stuff that I wasn't dealing with. I was a perfectionism perfectionist. So I had to be the best. I wanted to be the best. I will put the time and training and everything in to be the best. Um, and it, as long as the results are good and everything's good, you know, that, that, that's the success, success kind of lied to me a little bit. Um, so when I went through the workplace stuff that I went through, um, I started to really, um, adapt unhealthy coping strategies. So I was always a social drinker and, um, you know, when I went in the military, of course, sure, that's a very drinking culture, you know, substance culture, but, um, Still, I was always a very social drink. It wasn't um, a weekly type of thing. But then I found myself in 2019, 2020, using alcohol every night, every night. Um, and, it, and it became one of those things that I just justify. I remember my wife getting upset with me. You know, she would see the, the double IPA, the four double IPA cans mined along the kitchen sink uh, along the back wall to go out to recycle. That's where we put our recycling. Um, and she would come home from work teaching and, and it'd be, you know, three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon, there's four double IPA cans lined up and I was off that day. Not back in patrol. I haven't been back in patrol in eight years. And that was a new transition for me. It wasn't something I asked to do. So that was something I was working through as well. So there's a lot of layers to it of me, the emotional mental health, which was the alarm bells were ringing and I, and I was, had to figure out what that, those bells were. So, um, the stress and anxiety. I remember driving into work, you know, 2019, 2020, doing breathing exercises, having the, the, the anxiety in my belly and having to sit there for five, 10 minutes and breathe before I walked into the building. Um, because what, what I perceived is to walk into this, this anxious place. Now, whether it's perceptions or realities, I think, um, I think this is where the lived experiences that we can all get to, to a place of storytelling and, and listening to, you know, our stories, our experiences. Doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Doesn't mean you have to understand them. Just listen to them. I'll listen to yours. You listen to mine. And um, and I think if we do that, we'll find out, oh, I had anxiety too. Oh, you do breathing exercise. Okay. Is that, does that work for you? Um, so those are the things that I, I started to work through. I really attacked my mental, emotional health. Uh, I realized that, um, um, you know, my wife had a, a 10-year-old bottle of, of, of Vicodin up in the cabinet, sitting there for a second child, 10 years been sitting there. You know, one of the things you just throw away. I'm a cop. I'm an undercover detective. I'm doing, you know, working. But in 2019, when I'm at my lowest and I wanted to feel not pain, not being in pain, it's amazing the thoughts that come into your head from all those conversations as a drug officer, you know, hearing people tell me about Vicodin or Percocet and what it does to them, you know, and I would, I'm curious, yep. I would ask questions to learn, 
Um, and you know, you learn, you put it in your brain, but that, that, that was, but now those thoughts are coming because now I'm in a place of pain and I, my brain was struggling. I'm trying not to feel the hurt, not to feel the betrayal, not to feel the pain, not to feel the sadness and depression. So I'm drinking two beers and I go in the medicine cabin. There's these, these 10 year old Vicodin pills that sure I'll take them. Yeah. Somebody, you know, informant told me five years ago, these things will make you feel great. You'll melt into the couch and you won't feel anything for three hours. And guess what? He was right. He was right. That shame though, the shame of like, what happened? Like, is it me? Look at you. You're doing Vicodin and drinking. Like it's you, bro. It is, it is definitely you. And, and that for me, was just uh, a really scary time because it, my mental health really took a plummeted down. And then November of, it was actually Thanksgiving of 2019 um, is when it was kind of a crescendo moment. I, I was already having really, really depressed and was driving home that Thanksgiving after that, um, that next day, like 6.30 in the morning, we work six to six, that I'm driving home on the, the Pennsylvania Turnpike. There's not a soul around and and because uh, it's Black Friday now, six in the morning, Black Friday. And uh you know, just seeing these overpasses, I approach them. I'm just ruminating thoughts, ruminating. Again, this is subconscious. These aren't, you know, I'm not telling myself, oh, you're ruminating on these negative thoughts. This could be problematic for you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. So yeah. Uh, the ruminating of the thoughts. Well, I thought if I drive my car off this overpass, it's going to hit the ground, blows up, screw you, everybody. You know, um, you'll feel my pain and I won't feel my pain anymore. And, and that moment of, because I, and at that time, I thought I had absolutely no control over my life. I, I, it was an illusion. It was wrong. It was not true. But um, based on everything going on, it was this, this feeling that I had no say or much less say or control than I thought I should have. Again, these are all perceptions that, that we have to work through. And, um, but that, that sense of control of driving my car off the overpass for just that split second brought me like a sense of comfort, like a sense of, all right all right, uh, this isn't as bad as I think it is. So I kept driving and, you know, ruminating again, you know, a couple minutes goes by, you're starting to get your thought process again. This is before I learned about the voice in our head that we all have to some degree and how to shut it off when it's acting up and things I learned how to do. But at that point I didn't know. And that's where getting back to the why I wrote the book. Another thing I want to help is police suicide. Um, you know, if we can save some more lives and realize that things aren't nearly as bad as we think they are um, and drive those numbers down, bring them down. Um, so I got home and, and told my wife what happened. She was terrified and, and, and crying. And, and uh, I saw the look in her face and, you know, fear. And um, our family was breaking apart that, that look. And that put more shame on my plate. Like, what am I doing wrong? And so that, that, that fed the suicidal ideation. But by telling my wife, by being vulnerable to my wife, which I hadn't been, because I was the protector. I was the rock for our family. Um, I, you had a problem. You came to me. Uh, I solve our problem, family problem. Now I'm the one and stressed out and in distress. So, but that Patrick, I'm telling you, that was when I opened up to my wife and started sharing. And then she said, you have to share every bit of this journey with me, or we're not going to make it. Like we have to be absolutely fully transparent or we're never going to survive this. And she was right. Um, and I said, okay, I will. So, um, yeah. And getting back to the vulnerability, I think it's so important for us, even in the workplace. I think we can do it as leaders and do it in a way that, you know, I did this, you know, I remember being in Iraq and, and telling guys, Hey guys, this is a bad situation. I'm a little scared too, but guess what? We're going to get through it because we're going to work together and we're going to push this stuff together, but I'm not going to sit there and act like this isn't scary. Yeah. This is a tough situation, but I know we got the, the talent and the training and resource to do this. So we're going to do it together. Um, so it's that empowerment. You know, it's, I think if you're just vulnerable all the time, it's, it's and not being empowering or positive. I think that's where it becomes toxic, but um, I think leaders carefully throwing out at, at certain times is vulnerable stuff. And I, I referenced Chief Elliot Moya in Maine because um, Chief Moya walked in you know, a couple of years ago to his police department and uh, told his guys he was struggling and he's in therapy. 
And that changed everything. They, some of those getting the guys into therapy, they talk about it in a roll call. And it was just from the chief executive saying, Hey guys, it's okay. This is a hard job. I'm in therapy, you know, I'm like, Whoa, you know, it's, it's breaking down those stigmas of biases. Yeah. It's, so that, you know, a lot, a lot, you covered a lot of ground there. And I think the most, I, I don't, it's all important. Right. But I think that maybe the most profound part there is just opening up to your wife and then her, you know, real, you know, I, I think just it's like, I'm going to grab you by the coat and we're going to pull, we're going to pull you here. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. That's, that's really that's really powerful and you're very fortunate to have have someone like her in your corner uh because you know very. sometimes you do worry about and, and maybe this is the lesson like if for for people that don't have someone uh like that in their life you know, where do you turn where do you go and, and i think the answer is um there are a lot of resources out there um there are a lot of great groups like safe leo and others that are that are now doing great work in this space because there is somebody, there's always somebody, and and it's important that you do open up and you do share. Because let let's just face it, I, I you know we hear the statistic that the average police officer will experience, I think it's around 108, I think there's 182 traumatic events throughout the course of their career, compared to the average citizen where it might be two or three, and hmm. um. I have, I'd love, I haven't read that study because what I want to know is what, how did, the, what's the classification for a traumatic event? Because Right, right. I think well, 180 I think this, is low. Like, you know, yeah. I, I really think, well, this I is, think you could do that in a month, depending on how busy you yeah, are, right? Yeah. Where, and where you work at, what agency. Right. I think this is a great conversation because I was talking to my brother about this. He's also a police officer. He's got promoted sergeant. Um, I'm really proud of him. And um, we, and, and we talked about this a lot. We have this, this, way in law enforcement we compare and we did it in the military too so i remember when i came back from iraq it was like well how many firefights or or how many ieds did you have or how many tours did you do we love to compare oh i did four you only did three so like now the guy who did three <laughs> combat tours isn't as squared away as the guy who did four um and it's it's a horrible way we do this with trauma oh well you know I, we you and me patrick could be on the same fatal car accident you're, you've seen a lot of these, you've processed you have a good structure to your life. You have self-care is important to you. Like you have these things I don't know about. You're my partner and you, you navigate that. No problem. I don't have those things and I'm struggling, but I'm watching you coast through those things. And I'm thinking to myself, shit, something must be wrong with me. Cause this guy's crushing it, man. Like, and, and so I don't share because I don't want you to judge me. I'm a tough guy. Just like you are, Patrick. I can do the same job you can do. We got to stop that comparing thing. It's okay. You know, it's okay for things to bother us and not bother other people. It's okay for, you know, I lost a 10 month old. We lost a 10 month old child. It was drowning incident. And that, uh, that was 2020 during COVID during the riots that affected me as May of 2020 it affected me profoundly having children and, and watching this, this, this human life fall and die at 10 months old. But people around me, I'm not naive. I was crying. I had to excuse myself from the scene. I mean, I couldn't even, tears are streaming down my face, audible crying. It affected me so profoundly. And I'm embarrassed. I'm walking past EMS and everything. And we set up a crime scene. 
But I know not everyone on the scene cried like I did that day. And I just have to recognize, we have to recognize that, that we're all going to have different outbursts and that might be, or different reactions. That might be tied to childhood experiences, might be tied to stuff we're doing in our life right now. That might be tied to maybe one of our nephews or nieces are sick at home. Like there's so many things. And if we judge and compare, we're never going to get forward, move forward. We're never going to reimagine things to, to get people to come and say, you know what? You're going to come to do this job that is really dangerous and you're going to probably guarantee to change as a result of it but it's the most noble job you can do. It's the most impactful thing you could do in your community. Oh, well, I'll sign up for that. All right, we set that expectation. And we also say we're going to have a really dangerous job that's going to change you, but we're going to create strong culture to allow you to thrive in these and survive and thrive in these in these roles. And we can't just do one and ask you to do this hard job and not support you in the back end. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a tough proposition to ask. Yeah, so, you know, I'm... Um... I think one of the, the lesson here is there is an opportunity for us in our profession to on day one. And I know you talk about this in your book as well on day one, set the standard for how we're going to prepare officers for the future. Um, not, you know, not just from a tactical and a technical perspective, but from an emotional, uh, resiliency perspective, like, um, and it's, it's interesting that we all come to this from, from different angles. Uh, my background, how I really got started in wellness work was uh, I was really interested in fitness and nutrition. I was, I was really looking at the peak performance perspective of, you know, how do I, how do I make myself the best police officer, best SWAT officer I can be? And I was just really lucky. I say this a lot to have stumbled across some, some information written by uh, author. His name is Phil Maffetone. He wrote, wrote a book called in fitness and health. And he trains triathletes for a living. And in this book, he was talking about training like Mark Allen, Mike Pig, these guys like winning the Ironman like six, seven times in a row, like these super world-class athletes. But he was the first person that ever, where I ever read in the training process and in their background, looking at physical, emotional, and spiritual health, like, like these, all three of these things are connected. And so it kind of made me sit back and then, and then really start. And this was in the, in the mid to late nineties. Right. So I did my first wellness class, I think in 1998 for my police department, 98, 99. Wow. You were way ahead of the time. Well, well, you know what, here's the thing. Like it was, it wasn't planned. It was just kind of one of those things where like, Oh my God, police officers are dying like over 20 years, you know, below the national average, like like our mortality rates from cardiovascular disease are through the roof. So you're and and had, you just being a curious leader, right? You're like trying to figure this stuff out, like not accept it. And, and that's where I think we need to get as leaders, not accept these things, not accept it. Well, right. It's like, so, well, okay, now that we know, what, what do we do about it? And and you see a lot of this, particularly back then, I think the military has changed a lot of the ways, right? But I used to call it the military mentality is that everything was inevitable. Like, like, <laughs> oh, dude, forget it, man. It, it's going to happen regardless. And, you know, you had... Um, you know, even from a rank structure and everything else, and it, everything evolves, right? And yep. I'm like, well, shit. I, I, because I went into the service right out of high school, and then went back to college, and then I worked in the restaurant business for a few years, and then I was 27 when I started my policing career. So I'm not 22, but I got thinking. I'm like, okay, let me look at these numbers. If the average lifespan of a male in the United States is 83. And now I subtract 20 from that, that's 73, that's 63. If I work into my mid fifties, 
in policing and then I retire. Oh, well, now I see why cops are dying within in that first five years of retirement, because all of the stress and all of the impact that they're putting on their body during this career, all the things that they're carrying, uh, you know, they're the body's cashing in. You know, there's no way to avoid it. Um, so I was like, OK, well, if that if I know that now, what can I do from a preventative perspective to kind of, you know, I, resiliency wasn't the word I was using back then. I was just like, all right, how do I how do I keep this from happening? Because I want to live, you know, a long, a long, productive life. I, I There's things that I want to do beyond policing. So, yeah, I mean. That, but it really opened my eyes. So I, I was lucky in that I kind of got that early peak and it it really just changed the way that I, and again, it changed the lens in which I'm looking at things. And um, I was a crime scene photographer back then too. So I was always going to, <laughs> I, was, I was taking pictures of, of the worst things ever, right? Um, and it really, if you're a photographer, right? And you're familiar with lenses and different lens work, you know, uh, aperture. So there's kind of like all these, like, I guess, technical expressions that you can use. But for me, it was kind of like, okay, I saw a couple of these puzzle pieces click together. Uh, but just because you know it and you're aware of it doesn't mean that people are also going to, going to openly accept what you're talking about. But I think, you know, with, through the work of Kevin Gilmartin and others, you know, when he wrote Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, you know, I've been very fortunate to have, you know, presented with him now several times. Um, I came from it, you know, it, we came from like opposite ends of the spectrum. Like he came from the emotional and the psychology side. I came from the physical fitness and nutrition and, you know, what we can do there. And now what we're learning is that, guess what? They're all interrelated and interconnected. You can't focus on just one because that you, you'll do so at the expense of something else, mm. and it'll come back to get you. So yeah, definitely, definitely will. It's so, it's the same thing with the, the muscles, man. Like like, I think it's great we lift and, and police departments put gyms in their agencies, and um, we get these buzz slogans and motivational quotes. And I think, oh, that's great. But what are we doing for this? Are, are we culturally and institutionally pushing and encouraging this? We tell you, we put loud rap music on while we're lifting, while we're doing curls. That's great. Are we using the same rap music as, hey, now you curled your biceps, go curl your brain. Go work this thing out. Go take a walk. Go talk to a therapist. Uh, how are you doing on your meds? Uh, you know, like, are we thinking about the full spectrum wellness? Are we talking about this? That's not sexy or fun. I know, like, lifting weights, putting slogans is sexy and fun. Um, but we got to stop making policing so sexy and fun. Like, it's, sometimes it's rolling up your sleeves, and especially leadership. It is a messy, muddy process. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's kind of it. There's an opportunity, right? And so every time, every time we learn a lesson the hard way, it's an opportunity. There's an opportunity there to share it, to prevent somebody else from learning it there as well, learning it the hard way. And that's, you know, that's why, you know, I joke about it, but trial and error learning is, is not an efficient way to learn. It's a very inefficient way to learn. And I try is, to discourage, yeah. and you know, as men, you know, we're, we're prone to do this from time to time, right? Like we don't like to ask for help. Um, we try to figure things out on our own, right? Even if at the expense of it takes us an hour long to get someplace because, you know, we wanted to be right about directions, you know, <laughs> there's <laughs> a reason there's a reason these jokes are, you know, are out there, but uh, and I, you know, I, I think the important thing to also keep in mind is that like, you're never there, right? You're, you've, you're never going to have it figured out because there's always going to be something. So, um, 
I love I love the idea of of training for that, you know, that flexibility right up front. Like get awareness, awareness is like again, like in my case, I I, I just I stumbled upon awareness, but it changed the way that I thought moving forward. And it gave me an opportunity to influence others through that process. Yeah. Um, and and maybe, I think I think go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. I think I think we don't know what we don't we we get afraid of what we don't know or don't understand as a profession. And uh, we've been doing things so long for you know so away for so long. And and I don't want to compare it to other professions because we talked about not comparing. But um, you know, if you we look at the profession, has there been enough evolution from a time perspective? Does it is it commensurate with? what you would expect the outcomes to be. You know, I, I don't think we've grown commensurate with how long this profession, the technology has been growing and, you know, all these other challenge, mental health challenges. Like we need to identify what a cop is, what we want, what the community wants from a police officer. I think some communities are still trying to figure that out. You know, do you want these tough minded SWAT people to keep us safe and keep crime low? Do we want people to carry our groceries in? Do we want both? You know, it's like, um, there's just so much of these conversations that I think communities are having now that that um, to figure it out. And I think it's like what you said it best is sharing our perspectives. Like you and that perspective of wellness from the 90s, that you met or probably wanted to, some of them were interested in that that perspective because they weren't thinking like that or coming from that angle. Well, you know, there's a responsibility that comes with knowledge too. And that's oftentimes why people don't want to hear it <laughs> because if they right. hear it, then there's, then they feel the responsibility that they need to do something about it. And that can create some conflict because they may not yeah. have the resources to be able to do it. Or they may not know where to go. And uh, that's another, there is another opportunity, I think, to be able to grow the profession as well. Um, you know, yeah, I, I do. So, you know, I do tech, I do, uh, consulting calls on technology and other things as well. <laughs> there was I was talking to a, a to a, a technology leader. He's looking at bringing like something into into the law enforcement space, and he used this expression that I had to write it down, and it really chuckled out loud. He he said, "In policing, you guys are what we you know." He's like, "You're kind of technological laggards," <laughs> and I I just laughed out loud. And, uh, and he said, yeah, you know, I, I, it feels like you guys are about, you know, on average, about 10 years behind the curve when it comes <laughs> to using new technology. And I think I caught him off guard when I laughed out loud because I was like, I was like, first of all, I was like, that was just a really nice way of saying you guys suck at, <laughs> at implementing new technology. <laughs> and I'm like, Shit. and truth be told, we're about 20 years behind, not 10. Yeah. Um, but there's a reason for that, right? Because Why? We're we don't have research and development budgets. Budgets are compressed. They're very tight. And and so this I have a lot of empathy for chiefs because for all the things that you were just talking about, all these expectations from your community, nationally, state level, local level about what the expectations are of us, of you, without really even a true understanding of what it is that you're doing with your time. And what you're right. even capable of. And so if we overtask and under-resource right from the word go, we're setting you up for failure. Mm. And you know, what is what is a what's a police officer taught from day one? You know, you're taught to be a problem solver. I got this. And this is where I think, and I've talked about this before, but I think chiefs uh sometimes are their own worst enemies because they take that. I, I've got a can-do attitude. I'm, you know, look at me. I've, I've got this rank. I've been chosen to go out and lead this department, whatever. 
and and now now we're offering ourselves up to go solve problems <laughs> rather than right, rather right. than maybe asking taking a step back and saying when you present a problem to me maybe the first thing that we should evaluate is whose responsibility is this mm. and um is if it is a police responsibility what resources are you willing to share in order for me to be able to successfully negotiate what this challenge is uh, because if we don't do that if we just accept blindly because our ego tells us we can do this man we're in big trouble and um it's hard for us not to do that i'm guilty of it right like yeah I, uh, I'll, 100%. I'll, I'll find a way to get it done well, I think I think leadership is. Uh, I mean, you you bring up great points, um, and, and this is where being graceful towards our leaders also it goes both ways. You know, if we we have high expectations as officers of of our chain of command of our leadership, and they have the same of us, so we if we demand them X, Y, and Z, they demand the same of us. So it's a relationship, it's collaboration, it's give and you go, and you know, to see to see officers sit around a water cooler and talk trash on chain of command, you know, that's to me is like a coup de gras of a broken agency of. Uh, you know, like we got to keep momentum going. I know it happens everywhere. It's part of being in a workplace culture. But, um, you know, if it's something that becomes a, a consistent part of our routine, we look forward to eating meals so we can sit here and talk trash on people. We have to get out of that mindset um, and, and empowering people to be positive, I think, is, is, is going like a chief that can delegate more, develop talent, find out where the strengths and resources are in their department and then cast that cast that responsibility. Hey, this is on you. We will rise and fall based on how you're doing this. And by the way, we want you to do well. We're going to give you every resource and available. But if you do well at this, that's going to help all of us. And that, by the way, I don't have to do that. I can focus on doing X, Y, and Z for us. Um, collaboration is so important, I think, in any organization, but police work where seemingly we have some silos. You have detectives, you have patrol. You might have an undercover unit that sits in another building offsite a mile across town. I've seen those before. So it's hard. It's a, And it's a fluid environment. Every day is different and dynamic and um it really takes strong leaders that that probably can listen more, understand more, connect with humans more, uh, influence more, master communicators, all the things that we think aren't really good that probably are the things that would make us better at our job. Yeah. And, you know, um, you have some great, great points there. And and again, I think it all begins with the question, like, what can I do? Uh, before I ask someone else to solve a problem, what can I do personally to be a part of the solution, not be a part of the problem, right? And right, right. Either that self leadership is important. We teach we teach cops to lead themselves, be master leading yourselves, and we we and lead from the front with that culture, that mindset. It, it, it's cheap, it's free, um, and 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 it's a consistent thing that we can do that we can do right now. We can start to make inroads now. How we can empower ourselves just by being more positive, just by being more collaborative, just by being a little more vulnerable. Um, we can start to teach our officers to self-lead. When we become masters of leading ourselves, we're going to be great followers. We're going to be much better. Um, but officers are not going to follow self-leadership if, if the people above them aren't doing the same thing. So it just requires that trust and credibility. Yeah. And I, I would encourage listeners to go back and listen to the episode uh, with Michael Irwin. That And he, Michael Irwin, is a, he's a West Point grad, but and he wrote a book called Lead Yourself First. Uh, the forward in that book was written by Jim Collins. Everybody knows you know, the author of Good to Great. Um, and he's also the the CEO of Team Red, White, and Blue. So maybe you're familiar with him as, as a veteran. Uh, you can't go awesome. to a race without seeing Team RWB there, which is awesome. And, yeah. you know, that book was so profound uh, when, when I read it. Um, 
And so I, I just was very fortunate to get him on the show and get to talk to him about it. But one thing I didn't know before before I chatted with him is that he is the son of two police officers. His wow. both his mom and dad were uh, police officers in Syracuse, New York. You know, mom kind cool. of a trail trailblazer. You know, you know, women in policing. So just kind of a cool perspective about how that you know that that background even shaped him as a young person and his you know his desire to serve and you know, and then going and doing that at a very high level, um, in, in the yeah. army and, and now in his post-military career, but that's incredible. That's yeah. incredible. Okay. Winston Churchill, Jane Goodall. I mean, like the, the, like some of the people, the stories that, uh, uh, president Eisenhower, general Eisenhower, these people like that, he talks about how, in, in how they manage crisis and the things that they, you know, how they look inward, uh, really, really powerful stuff. Yeah, that's uh, powerful. It's funny. I, I coached both my son's football teams, flag football teams, and um, it's a pretty competitive league. It's fun. And, um, but one of the, we focus on culture. I tell, you know, it's the fourth year I've been doing this and we really focus on culture. I tell the parents that I set that expectation on day one, that, that the better player, the, the, the talent is not going to reign supreme here. I mean, this, these are, this is a development league. They're children. We're going to teach them how to be master at self-leading and, and how to be great teammates and all that stuff will take, all the winning will take care of itself. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but it'll, it'll happen. And what's happening is both teams are doing really, really well. My son, who's 13, um, I, I, this year I started having him called. I started mentoring him in, all the, in the offseason to call all his own plays for the offense. He's a quarterback. And this year, we're if he's four and zero, and I'm talking about the team at four and zero, and I haven't, I might have called three or four plays all year. I say this to say, last year or in the winter, he's I can't, I'm, you know, I'm thirteen years old, like you know, I'm not gonna be able to call my own plays. I got an offense I'm thinking about, and I, I, that's your job as a coach. I said, like, why wouldn't you call the plays? I said, because I'm not gonna be around forever, son. And if I can develop you to self lead and call your own plays, you won't need a play caller. You won't need a coach. Now you could get a coach, and you should have a coach. But the whole point is the whole ethos of the, the whole team. I tell is self lead is be master preparers. Put yourself in the absolute best light. Then you need less people. You need, don't need as much. You don't not so needy. You're not so dependent on everyone else. Um, you know, and that's another thing with law enforcement. I think cops are, you know, struggling for resources to report. So of course they're going to complain. They're going to bring things to the table that maybe they that other people don't. Because um, I think that they're stemming for connection. They're stemming for some more support. Yeah, what you're talking about is is leading from high expectations, and um, it, you never know what your true potential is if people only set the minimum standards for you. And if, right, right. if good, if and this it's another reason why like one of the one of our required reading books at my agency was uh, was Extreme Ownership um, by Jocko Willink, and I think uh, I think most people have read that book or a lot of people in law enforcement. If you haven't, you should. But, you know, he's got a line in that book where he talks about, you know, you get what you tolerate, um, not just personally, but, you know, everywhere in life. Right? You can see that everywhere you go. If 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 it doesn't matter if you're going to McDonald's, um, which this is a terrible example, because I don't think I've been to a McDonald's in 20 years, but <laughs> I'm not a fast food eater. And I would encourage others. And I say this, the being, you can go to McDonald's and eat healthy. It's just really hard. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah. you get you got you're gonna have to use another one of Jocko's mindsets and you're gonna have to be extremely disciplined. Exactly. And it's not even cheap anymore. So we can't even use that argument. I know. Things yeah. have gone up. So well, so there's always well, it's a double cost, right? You know, it's pay now or pay later. Right. Um right. but 
I, that's that's a whole another conversation that, that I'm happy to go down that road, but we don't have enough time. We're we're getting towards the end, but um, all right. So with that in mind, let's let's start to wrap this up. Well, I, I knew we'd be going long. Um, in your book, The Holy Trinity, what what are the three things that you're trying that you know that what are the main the three trinity? What is the Trinity that you're talking about in this book for professional development? and what you think will help build a healthy police organization. Yeah. Culture, leadership, and wellness are the three things, the three areas, um, culture being kind of the main one, but uh, I lumped the three of them, the other two, because you, we can't get to good culture without being well, without being, uh, have good leadership. So uh, just looking at organizations, anybody can do this. Anybody can look at an organization, a police department, any company and, and, and look at um, the top and you can kind of see based on who, is at the top and what their ethos are, what their philosophies are, what their values are, that's going to trickle down. And you're going to see what that organization tends to be a mirror of, of what the chief executive is. So, um, you know, I, I advocate that culture, culture is everything, culture, uh, all, all decisions, all conflict, all process, all progress, uh, everything is, is flows through the culture. And if we treat it like that, where it's not about one person, it's about the culture, about the system, it's set by the top. And then it, it, that, that modeling example goes all the way down through good leadership and, and having well leaders. So um, yeah, that, that's really the core crux of it and, and how we get there. You know, I, I don't lay everything out per se, but um, there is a lot in there that I think any organization can do that is pretty cost effective. Um, it's a very holistic approach. My book is a very holistic. I, mean, I, don't, I don't make any reference about throwing more money at the solution. I actually think more money in, in some respects has, has caused problems in my perspective. I, I know cops that make 150,000 a year, 140,000 a year. Um, and they're, they're with a high school diploma. Not that that's bad. That's a great thing. But uh, if we also didn't develop that officer, which so many agencies aren't doing, and I work in a very affluent area, you know, if we're not developing those humans, they're going to fall to their, their baseline again. And, and I know so many examples of, um, you know, of cops that, that I know have violated their personal values and virtue. Uh, during their career that they wouldn't have done otherwise. And we have to ask the question, why? Like, what happened? Uh, an officer specifically that has multiple kids, a, a devout Catholic, has left his family for a mistress, ran into the arms of a mistress that I know he doesn't want to do. I know that officer doesn't believe it. How did that happen? Why don't we ask those questions? We just assume, ah, that's police work. Yeah, they're divorced. Half, half of us are divorced. You know, like, we just accept these things. I don't accept that at all. I look at a man who's broken. I look at a man who's making decisions based on uh, navigating in a, an unhealthy environment or an unhealthy life, personal lifestyle. But I don't think for a minute that that person made that decision because that's what he wants to do. Um, he didn't violate his personal values. So, but that we, we laugh that stuff off. So how can we get back to not laughing that stuff off? And we actually say, Hey man, I think you have a problem. I think you need to get help. It takes a lot of courage and vulnerability to speak that way. And I think that that starts from within all through the culture. That's a, gr that's a great observation because the, I think in in the current and maybe in in one of the things that we really have been forced to examine internally, I'm talking nationally as a police culture, is the this idea of mutual accountability. Like you're responsible for the decisions that your partners make. Um, and let me ask you this question: mm. as as a policing culture, do you think we're good at that, or do you think? Um, we're not. Oh, I think I, I. That's a good question. I think we're. I think we're not good at that. I think um, uh, to, to offer such a generalization, and, and I want to make sure I'm understanding your what, exactly what you mean. But um, 
Well, it it can be professionally or personally, right? It, it's nobody. And listen, I, I know it's this is not something that is unique to policing. However, policing is held to a different standard than than the rest of society. Like people are set, people are have the expectations is that you are the standard bearer. And right, yeah, knowing, knowing that going in, when you see things that you know are are you know lawfully wrong, you know against policy, or maybe morally wrong. What do you think causes the apprehension? What do you think it is about police culture that creates an environment where we don't confront it? Mm, we laugh it off. Question. We yeah. laugh it off or we just flat out ignore it. Yeah. Oh, man. And, this and is, like, this oh, that's not my problem. That's his. I have my own so, I have my own thoughts on this, but I would um, love to hear. I'll give you mine and I'd love to hear yours. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'll try not to be so general with this because I want to be more specific, but uh, I think the ambition and the professionalizing for professionalizing of the, the, of the, of the job is one aspect that has caused so many, me included to want to go out and get a master's or go do more things and get more titles and more accolades. Um, it's all rooted in wanting to do a good job, but like anything else, it could have lead to a potential for misabuse or misuse. Then on top of that, I think uh, we we weren't we haven't developed leaders consistently and effectively. Doesn't mean there aren't good chiefs or good sergeants or good corporals. Absolutely, they're amazing leaders out there, but they're the ones that are hard to find. We need to create a, a profession where that's you know, like you said, the standard. The standard is it's not an outlier to find a great leader. It's an outlier to find a bad leader. It's an outlier to find a selfish leader because usually these, these leaders are leading from the front, modeling the behavior we want their officers to see. Um, so we need to get that. That's one aspect of it. Um, I think uh, the mental health and, and emotional health and some of the unresolved baggage from people, not just leaders, cops too, uh, has created a, a uh, just a dog-eat-dog culture, you know, comparing a trauma and problems and, and unhealth, uh, unhealthy perspectives that have now come into the workplace. So I, I think it's layered. I think there's so many. I think those are three that contribute to a, a place uh, generally where we're not overly honest because we're afraid of being judged for what we really think. We're going to go along to get along. I don't want to show my individuality because you're going to use that against me at some point. If not today, maybe tomorrow. Um, and I'm certainly not going to tell you when things are going bad because uh, I know that that's not what we want to hear around it. We only want to hear when things are going good or we only want to hear things are going great. Um, any sort of conflict, you know, is, ah, what's wrong? Or you're, you're not grateful for these things. So I just think it's so layered um, to that. But yeah, I think here we are. Nonetheless, we are here. Yeah. And that's great. I, I love uh, we go along to get along. It's a, it's a great, it's a great expression. Um, and again, we're not policing. It's not unique to policing, but what is unique to policing is the fact that we are required now in almost every, in almost every case to wear cameras on our person, have dash cameras in our car. So everything that we do is being recorded. And now you can always be judged. And and the Supreme Court through Grand V. Connor and always right is is you're you're we can't judge through the luxury of hindsight. Um, we have to judge from a position of what what did an officer know at the time when they were acting in taking in all of these considerations, all that. Now, that that I think is is the legal definition of of this, but the reality is. We, we all we're human beings. We're constantly judging and being judged all day long. Every interaction, 
we're processing this through our own, again, through our own lenses and we're making sense of it. And I think this is, again, just my personal opinion that when you know that you're being recorded and everything that you're doing, that that's a lot of pressure. Like the mm. expectation is perfection, quite frankly, right? Because right, right, if right. you make a policy mistake, if you make a bad decision under pressure, you're going to be judged and and it, you know and you're going to be judged under the law first right so if you violate law you now now you you're not just worried about losing your job right you're losing you know you, you could be criminally prosecuted for something that you did and maybe you had no intention and right right we also if you've done this job and you've and you felt that extreme pressure all the time right like when you, and what this is something that I don't know that anyone, unless they've been there, can truly understand what it's like to, to go to the to the death scenes, to the domestics, to the fights, to the conflict all the time. Where as soon as you show up, you become the target of the vitriol, and to have mm. that spewed at you, and and to stand there and to and to have people on the outside expect that you can that any normal human being can take that day in and day out um, mm. constantly without without every once in a while having an outburst uh without saying something they shouldn't have um you know being in it i mean we are judging at such a granular level now like oh well you know he hit him four times was too right, you know right. well he should have only struck him twice and like when you're getting down to that level, um, that is a lot of pressure, right? So we fear being judged by others if we judge others. Mm. And I think, and that's ultimately what that's, that's yeah. what creates this reluctance because you know what? Yeah. I just watched my partner hit him four times when he should have only hit him twice. But you know what? I understand why that probably happens and I can right. empathize with that. So you know, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go tell the sergeant, Hey, my partner struck him four times. He should have only struck him twice because tomorrow I might be the one that's striking somebody four times yeah. instead of tw when somebody else thinks you should have only struck him twice. Right. Right. And, and again, it's, that, uh, like, that's such a good point you bring up. Like the, the, um, you know, nobody hates a good, a bad cop more than a good cop. You hear that all the time. You know, mm -hmm. it's a way to sniff out the uh, corruption and whistleblow and, but I think is everything a, is everything corruption? Is everything need, yeah, right. Is everything a whistleblower? How about just get down on the knee and ask your partner, hey man, I see you're having a bad day. What's going on? Is everything all right? Like, I don't need to report you for anything. Or maybe I did see you do something wrong, but I know who you are. I know where you came from. Um yeah, I, yeah, it's a it's a it can be a, a dog eat dog culture. And um, you know, so, so many good ones go down because uh they, they don't know how to survive in those cultures or, or navigate those cultures. Yeah, you know, I I I don't like that, and I don't like the and and I've I've I know I've said it, and I don't even like it, and I've you know it's, but it's a way that the public I think understands that you understand, and like yeah, of course, in the bad apple argument, um, sure, name a profession that doesn't have people that that aren't very good at what they do. Hundred <laughs> percent. I, yeah, I it, actually it, think cops. I think cops are low hanging fruit, to be honest with you. I think we're like easy, we're target easy targets. Tonight. Absolutely. And, and we make ourselves that. and we and we 100%. don't do ourselves any favor uh, yes. when we allow our, uh, you know, when we get emotionally dysregulated and we allow that to override like our good judgment, yeah. our common sense. Right, right. And, and again, yeah. so 
there, there's a reason I bring this up, right? Because all of these things are, they, they should be, they should be incentives for the general public to double down on the investment in policing to say, look, yeah, wow, we are, we can see it. My God, we're watching these videos. Now, now you don't have to go on a ride along to get it, to get a front row seat to what cops are doing every day. You can sit at the, you know, look it on your phone, watch on your desktop, whatever. And, and uh, instead of looking at it as, as entertainment, say like, this is, these are my fellow human beings. Mm. This is the way that my neighbors are treating other neighbors. This, and, and i People are starting to see, you know, the tail's coming back around right now. Um, yeah, we just had a, a, a legislator get murdered and, you know, you had carjackings. You have people that are experiencing that, yeah. violent crime that have never experienced violent crime before. And I think that people are now being forced to kind of like inside policing, right? We've been saying it all along. This is a bad idea. Sure, there are things that we need to get better at, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Let, let's yeah. be let's be selective about it. So, um, you know, your book, I think, is a great I think it opens up the opportunity to have some really, really good discussions, not just internally inside of police departments. I think it gives everybody at all levels a good opportunity to have some self-reflection. And we should all do that from time to time. Right. Like, all right. Yeah. You know what's being described here? what are the things that, that I'm doing? How, how, how can I improve myself? How can I be better for others, for my family? Um, yeah. Well, yeah. and I, and, and I, the last chapter is called dream chasing. And, uh, I ended there because I, I wanted, I know it was heavy and I know it's a, a heavy topic and uh, I wanted to share kind of my experiences in a way that they can help people, but that's, it was heavy. It was heavy to write that for me. Um, so I end with dream chasing because I, I want to send the cop. I want to send the reader into a place of, of empowerment and positivity. Like we are not defined by our bat, our actions and our past. And if we are telling ourselves we are, then we're in trouble. We got to get out of that mode. We are not defined by our actions and our past. Those are things that happen. We can learn tremendous from them, but we have to make changes. And there's no DeLorean. There's no 1985. We can't go backwards. So we have to just move <laughs> forward. And, and not and, yet. Anyway. And that's yeah, exactly not yet. And uh, basically what I say with the dream chasing is, I, I've seen a lot of officers I work with of, of kill themselves on overtime or or really focus on that dollar. And I get it. Your family needs that dollar. Um, I, I get it. I'll never say anything uh, anything other than that. But what happens, I think, sometimes is we, we create this system in police work where we're just chasing that dollar. We're chasing the overtime. We're chasing these details. We'll burn the candle both ends. We'll, we'll take our families as hostage. That's okay because that's what's needed. Um, but what if we pull the lens back in this capitalistic approach to life and just say, what if there's more to life than money? Oh, okay. And that's all I want to highlight. So I write a chapter about like my, what my dreams are and, and my dream is and, and with my wife and my family and where I want to go and what I want to do. And, and nothing has to do with money. Those things I think will take care of itself, but that's not why I'm doing it. And I think in police work, we have to get back to service, get back to impact. All that other stuff will take care of itself. I promise it will. You're not going to be wealthy as a cop. That's not why you did it. And if we're trying to be wealthy as police officers, then maybe it's, it's time for a new profession. But um, you know, it, all that good stuff will take care of itself if we build a good foundation and, and chase the things that really add value to us. Right on. Well, I think I, I disagree in one aspect. I think you can be wealthy as a police officer. It might just not be financially wealthy. Uh, uh, I, th yes. I think you'll have a uh, you, a wealth of experience and 
you know, you can feel good at the end of your career that knowing that, you know, you did a lot of great things and you helped a lot of people and, and not every, not every career presents that opportunity. And so I think we need to do a better job too of selling that. And, and I'm glad you, you, you're ending with dream chasing because sometimes it feels like I, you know, that I'm, I'm going down a negative path. I do that in a way because I really do want, I, I am concerned about the future. I would be lying if I wasn't uh, about the, the troubles that we're getting, you know, having, uh, bringing in new talent, the right type of person, uh, the people that have the best character and integrity. And, and quite frankly, you know, the, I, I think the skill sets to be able to handle these types of environments, uh, yeah. what we're, and I, I think people are one of the, we look at this maybe through an old paradigm too, when, when we're worried about people leaving and this just kind of close out a topic we talked about earlier, the way that we train and prepare, maybe it's not a bad thing that we, that we understand that 30% of our workforce might leave in the first three years. Maybe that's the self-selection process. Maybe they're not the right people. And, and if they leave your organization, it, you know, oftentimes when somebody leaves your organization, it can be addition by subtraction and a good thing for both. Like a person can go find a better fit, uh, something that that is right for them without necessarily, you know, taking it personally inside the organization. Like, you know what? Um, they, they use me and they moved on. It's kind of like, it's kind of like dating in high school. Right. Um, so it may, maybe just a different mindset about that. Um, and the dream chasing, I think, you know, my dream would be is, is a significant amount of investment. Like it's amazing to me. We can, you know, we can shit out $40 billion to send to Ukraine overnight, but we can't seem to find any money ever to pay our police officers to get them the training but mm-hmm. we're willing to to overtask and underfund them all the time. We're willing to help everybody else but ourselves. And and I don't mean to say that we need, you know, like those, they're both not important. I just, you know, to me personally, I would like to see, you know, that type of national movement, that type of national incentive. Uh, so we can take best practices from around the country. We can take programs. And it's what I love about what Performance Protocol is doing in the coaching model that we, that now this is, and this is the, where the entrepreneurial spirit, I think also, you know, can, you know, show, show where, where it has value in that, Hey, look, you know, we've got this platform now that we're, we can help anyone at, in any department, anywhere in the country. Uh, so you don't have to rely on just the people that in your small circle, you can broaden your horizons with a single phone call. And in okay. one hour, um, you can get access to information that you might have never had in your entire career. Um, it's, you know, it's incredible. So yeah. real, can we end on this? I want to, cause I think this is the coaching. This will, this will tie it off. Nice. Um, right. Cause I want to piggyback what you said about coaching. I agree with that. And, and um, I'm coaching two, two uh, professionals in local government here in Pennsylvania. And it's, I believe it's the first municipality in PA to do this year long performance coaching uh, for two department heads, you know, in a local municipality. And what I'm finding is exactly what you just said it's an incredible team collaboration because the town manager is doing so much trying to drive the mission and the services and being the chief executive of the township. He doesn't have the bandwidth or time to mentor and develop and train every department. It's just not how the system is set up, but he acknowledges it still needs to be done. So he brought me in to fill that gap. And now these, these ladies are doing really well and it's not 
uh, affecting the time of the municipality or any of any of those people. I get to pour into them in my way, the way I do it. Uh, and, and they're growing and their confidence is taking off and they're affecting the bottom line and morale's picking up. And it's just from filling in that gap, bringing that, being in that solution, because in the military, it's weird. It's not weird. It's a great thing, but it's not possible in law enforcement. I don't think in the military, we did all the training ourselves. We didn't outsource training. We became subject matter experts and then train our squads how to do it. Um, police force not like that. So if we want to save money and we want to in incorporate more training opportunities, we just have to think outside the box um, and, and coaching fills that gap. So I'm happy that P2's set up the role. I think the future's bright. Perfect. You're kind of like a, like a, a law enforcement au pair. <laughs> <laughs> that's Maybe funny. that's not that's a funny. good example. Yeah. No, All I'll right. Take let's, it. I'll take it. Yeah. Let's, let's end it at that. Hey, Chad, I really, really appreciate you being here. Um, great story. And I'm going to show everybody the again the book, um, Holy Trinity of Successful and Healthy Police Organizations. Successful and healthy. It is possible. Uh, nothing's ever perfect, folks. So nope. just be willing to uh just be willing to roll up your sleeves and and do your part. Do your part. That's all you can do. And last thing, Pat, sorry, I want to you because you said this earlier, and I and I want to piggyback on what you just said, because it's so important. It is a journey. It's never ending. There is no destination. And that's the problem, I think, where we, we tell ourselves, that, like, oh, I can't get there. I can't do it. We can do that when you realize there is no destination. It is every day showing up, just being the best leader you can be by being an active listener, uh, being compassionate, also having hard truths. Your people do bad things sometimes. you got to tell them that. But doing right it in on. a way that that is collaborative and doing it in a way that I want you to succeed and, and not bring the policy manual into the meeting. But understand that policy is there. We understand that's there and how we enforce and discipline. That's all there. But I don't need to lead with that. I don't need to finish with it. I, what I want to do is be a good human and help you get through this problem. If we have to, if this doesn't work, and the worst case scenario is at the end of the day, we have to come back and discipline you, do policy, that that's what it's going to be. But I hope that doesn't happen because as your boss, as your leader, I want to avoid that by helping you develop and grow. I know that that mindset and that, that coachability takes time and practice, but I think we can get there. Absolutely. We'll do a we'll do a session too, and we'll talk about that. Like discipline is not punitive; it's corrective. Right, exactly. And, yeah, great. I think when supervisors lose that message, uh, that's that's when you start you you see a spiral. But right, all right, I agree. We'll say that for brother. next time. Thanks for being here with us, and until uh, till the next episode of the Captimizer Podcast, I'm going to be ten forty two. The Coptimizer podcast is powered by Performance Protocol. Performance Protocol brings professional executive coaching to police officers and administrators at all levels of the organization. Performance Protocol has the blueprint that will operationalize organizational optimization. It is purpose-built for today's public safety employees to help them accomplish goals and live better. What is it? one-on-one -on -one video-based coaching with officers and leaders who have been in your shoes and know firsthand what it means to live and work in public safety. The program will connect you with certified coaches who combine their years of success in the world of law enforcement with world-class training from the cobble of performance protocol coaches. Get the support, resources, motivation you need to live the life you want. Performance protocol coaches are relatable, knowledgeable, and confidential. Most importantly, they get results. Why should the keys to unlocking our peak performance be reserved for just the boardroom or the playing field? Unleash your full potential today and get started 
with Performance Protocol. Remember, performance is the goal, protocol is the path. Log into www.performance-protocol and learn more about how to bring this program to your agency and community.